Amen. Well, we are so thankful again that you are here today, and I can't wait to get into God's Word with you and see where the Lord leads. And I do want to say what a cool experience it was to have our junior church leading us in worship again this morning. Uh, That was so fun to see them up here, and so excited to have them join us that way. Uh, We are in uh, week three, which is really week four of our Galatians study. And so, again, it's technically the fourth week of the study, but we are in chapter three or week three, um, because as you know, I never keep a series on track. It's always going to be more. So if I say a four-week series, you instantly know that's six to eight, just depending. So... Um, but we are excited to see where the Lord's going to lead this morning. And uh, before we get into that, uh, I almost forgot to mention we are so blessed uh, to have a celebrity in our service today. Um, this uh, young woman starred in the uh, Off Off Broadway. Would it be Off 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 Broadway production? Something like that. It's a couple offs off Broadway. Um, hopefully got a chance to go out this week and see Melody Corbett in uh, the Chatfield production of Moana Jr. Uh, she was the Gram, uh, Gam Gam. Gam Gam was the name, yes. And so I have to say it was a really, really cool. And I just want to say thank you to those that went out and saw her. Um, it was so cool to see some of our church and hear of some of our church going out and supporting her in that way. So thank you for that. Um, and, yeah, I was thinking about how many off-Broadways that would be. It's quite a few. But it was a really cool production, so good job to her on that. Uh, This is mostly just to see how red I can get her face. That's really what this is about. There's no real other purpose than that. So, But Galatians chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, we're going to be again in the first verse there. This is page 820. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 820, Galatians chapter 3. Again, we've gone through quite a bit of content Over the last couple of weeks, if you've missed any of the services, any of the messages, uh, definitely go online and check those out. You can get those on the app, on the website, and so on and so forth. Um, And again, if you want any of the notes, I know I've had a couple people ask for notes. Um, What I'm probably going to do is just, like I said before, wait until we're all done and then just send the notes along. Um, Unless you specifically want just one week, then let me know and we can do that. And so we have learned together, I pray, and my prayer through this whole series, and as I've been writing these different messages, is that we would understand... First and foremost, there is only one true gospel. Amen. There are not many roads up this mountain of life and that all end in the pinnacle of God's presence in a heaven or some form of a heaven. There is only one path to his heaven. There is only one gospel. There is only one gospel that saves mankind and forgives us of our sins. And that one true gospel brings freedom. And we've been unpacking that even last week, that that freedom is worth fighting for. That freedom is worth fighting for. As Paul demonstrated in chapter 2, he was willing to fight for this freedom in Christ, not only against the Judaizers, these false teachers, but also even against Peter. He was willing to stand and have confrontation with Peter so that Peter would even realize the freedom that comes in Christ. And again, what does that show us? That shows us that even as Christians, even as followers of Christ, we can get caught up in maybe the popular opinion of a church we grew up in or a background that we're familiar with, and we kind of get led into this thinking that it's Jesus plus something because my denomination told me that, or this church told me that, or this pastor told me that, or I saw this thing on YouTube, and all of a sudden we get caught up, we get carried away into somehow thinking it's Jesus plus good works. It's Jesus plus church attendance. It's Jesus plus whatever it might be. And we think that's somehow going to give us extra assurance. And then what we do is we get caught up with this. And then we actually start to encourage others to get caught up in this. And I can hear Paul's word saying, I stood Peter face to face. I stood against Peter face to face. Because there was an offense that was going on, and it wasn't that Paul was offended, it was the gospel was being offended. And as we said last week, there are false teachers, people that are teaching things that are not in agreement with God's word. And it's okay to address that. It's okay if you're in a conversation with somebody and someone says, oh, I just love so-and-so. It's okay to, for the gospel's sake, have a conversation and say, well... This person kind of teaches this, and they actually believe that, and that's not really in agreement with the gospel. Now, in our church culture, as we said before, people will say, well, you don't know them. Who are you to judge them? You know, they're a Christian. They're preaching the Bible, all these other things. You just don't like them. You're just attacking them, or you're attacking their style. There's nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with, is it in agreement with God's word? 
And if it's not in agreement with God's word and someone says that it is, it's okay as a follower of Christ to say, can we talk about this thing? Can we get into God's word and discuss this thing and have a conversation about this and maybe see where one of us is off from scripture? But in our culture today, that's not real popular, even in the church. It's automatically, well, you just don't like that person. You're going after that person. We should never attack someone, but we definitely need to attack false teaching. We need to speak against false teaching and things that would be contrary to God's word. You see, this freedom we have in Christ is a freedom that's worth fighting for. And as I was writing this message over the last couple of weeks, there was a thought that came to my mind and this idea of fighting for freedom. And obviously it's very relevant to what we see going on in our world today. I think about this conflict in the Ukraine and Russia. Now, let me say at the onset, I do not claim to understand all that's going on over there. You don't understand all that's going on over there. All we see is what's being shown to us, and that's fine. I'm not saying we got to understand everything going on over there necessarily. And the whole point about this I want to make is, even though I don't understand what's all going into that conflict, why things are happening the way they are, I, I have to sit back and just be so amazed by the Ukrainian people and by their willingness to fight for their freedom, for their, their country, their, their lives, their families, to be willing to take up arms, to defend their nation that way. I'm, I'm in awe of that. Because they see the freedom that they have and the threat that's taken the freedom away so serious, they're willing to fight. And they're even willing to risk their very lives to defend it. Now, how can you not be impressed with that? How can you not sit back and say, man, I, I, that's, that blows me away. And here's the reality as followers of Christ. The freedom we're talking about protecting and fighting for is greater than any land you own, any temporal freedom you possess. It's greater than even your very life. And isn't that what Paul shows us in Galatians? He's willing to die to defend not only the freedom in the gospel, but the gospel. And in fact, Paul is going to die a death of a martyr because he would not, he could not stop preaching the gospel. Isn't that the story we see in the book of Acts? These disciples are brought before the religious leaders and they're threatened and they're beaten and they're threatened some more. And they tell them, if you don't stop preaching this name of Jesus, we're going we're gonna to kill you. And I can almost imagine the disciples just not smirking. I don't think they were smiling. But maybe inside they had this joy, this peace. You see, when they threatened, we'll take your very life, they could easily respond with, we've already been crucified with Christ. The life that I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can't kill me. I've already died with Christ and rose again for eternal life. You can't take that away. So yeah, you can hurt the body. You can kill me in the physical sense, but I have eternal life. You can't take anything of my eternal life. You see, the disciples and Paul had a similar passion that they understood the gospel was worth fighting for. And as we see throughout church history, the gospel is worth dying for. Now, I'm not saying that we in this room, in this country, are going to have to make that choice. I don't know that. I mean, I don't have any idea. I know some of us want to start thinking that, well, it's, it's coming, brother. It's coming. It may. I don't know. But our brothers and sisters overseas have been battling with this for 2,000 years. I mean, just everywhere you look, there's just persecution. I mentioned it last week. If you go out into the lobby out here, there's a, our, uh, like a magazine rack that's got our missionary prayer cards and different resources on it. And there's, from Voice of the Martyrs, there's a global prayer guide different nations that are going through different things. You can grab one of those and pray over the believers that are in that country and pray over what's going on there. You see, these, these brothers and sisters in these other countries, other places, and yes, even here, are understanding that this is something worth giving our very lives to. You see, the reality of the gospel, this one true gospel that I talked about before that brings us great freedom, that brings us eternal life, this one true gospel is worth everything. It's worth everything. See, because it is the only way for eternal life. It is the truth of God's word. And so I wonder for me and maybe for you, do we really see it in that light? Do we really see the gospel and the freedom that comes in the gospel worth fighting for? 
Because Galatians seems to suggest it is worth fighting for. Again, as hard as it is to believe, the same passion we see these people defending their country with is the same passion that Paul demonstrated in his defense of the gospel. You see, he understood that fighting for temporal freedoms in this life pales in comparison to the eternity that lies ahead and the crucial choice all of us must make. Are we trusting in self and religion or are we trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ? That's the gospel. So where are we in this idea? Where are we in this idea of fighting for the freedom that we have in Christ, defending it with everything we have? I'm not talking about physical. I'm not talking about getting starting a fight with someone. I'm talking about using the word of God, using prayer, the, the infilling and the empowering of the spirit to go into people's lives and just share truth in love and to preach the gospel freely and openly and live in a way that we enjoy the gospel. See, the other part of this is, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, is that so many of us as Christians, we don't really live in the freedom that we have. We're living in fear. We're living in performance. We're living in religion and religious thinking that I got to keep doing good so that God will keep loving me. In a couple of weeks, we're really going to dive into that in chapter 5 and even a little in the chapter 6. But Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's jump into our text this morning. Most of that wasn't even in the notes, just so you know. Galatians chapter 3. as a freebie. Look at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified, among you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the light that it shines onto our path that we can know not only where we are, but where we're going. And Lord, we know that there are many in the world today and even in the church that teach and preach things contrary to your gospel. It's Jesus plus something. And I know, Lord, over the last couple of weeks, we've really kind of hammered on that fact that that it's Jesus alone. And I, and I really want to stay here for a while yet because I believe that the more we understand the gospel in a practical, everyday sense, the more we preach the gospel to ourselves daily, Lord, our entire lives are changed, transformed. There's no area of our life that is not touched with the reality of the gospel when we just dwell in, in what it really is and who you really are and the love that it really shows us. How was I, or how could I rather as a husband not treat my spouse in a certain way when I understand the gospel? How as an employee or employer can we not live in a certain way and treat our boss or those that work for us in certain ways because we understand the gospel? How can we choose to not love our neighbor as ourselves when we realize the gospel? Pray for our leaders. Lord, I love that passage from Isaiah that was read this morning, that the nations, that the nations and the kings will be drawn to this light. They'll, be, they'll see the light of Christ, I believe, is what's being spoken of there. They will come to know you. Father, some will come to know you as Savior. What a glorious moment that will be. But some will come to know you as judge. But either way, you will be glorified. And so, Father, help us to just really allow you by the working of your Holy Spirit to encourage us and, and, and work in us and through us that we may understand what you have for us this morning. Not that we would just gain knowledge, Lord. There's nothing wrong with knowledge, but we don't want to stop there. We want that knowledge to translate into application and wisdom so that we might live differently according to your words that you would be glorified. Father, thank you for your grace that anyone in this room, myself included, where we've stumbled and fallen and made decisions that were contrary to your will. There is grace to pick us up, to forgive us, to restore us. I pray that we would repent and turn from those things and turn to you. Thank you for all that you're going to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Galatians 3.1, a very popular verse. It's the only time that I can think of that Paul uses this idea of calling a church foolish. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians. Now, in our day and age, foolish isn't that big of an insult. There's a lot of worse things he could have called them or said to them. But when you think about this, he's, he's actually saying to them that they are moronic. They're foolish. They're not using wisdom. 
It's important to note that even in the letter to the Corinthians, he did not call the Corinthian church foolish. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you're going to find out really quickly, that was a pretty messed up church. So if you ever think, man, I wonder if our church is is messed up. Just read Corinthians. You go, no, we're good. We're fine. Because there's some crazy stuff that goes on in that church. I mean, just thing after thing. They were using the Lord's Supper as a chance to get stuffed and just overindulge on food. They were getting drunk. They were just denying the poor that were coming in with nothing. I mean, the Lord's Supper was being used to cause division in the church. The spiritual gifts were being abused and neglected and and misunderstood and used for self-promotion and self-glory. There's examples of sin where individuals were involved in relationships. They had no business being involved in. The church was just cool with it. They actually thought they were doing fine because they showed so much grace that they were overlooking this open sin. It's just thing after thing. There was division among the church people as far as which ones are we listening to? I'm with Apollos. I'm with Peter. I'm with Paul. And it was all this division in the church. And even in Corinthians, he doesn't call them foolish. He calls them some other things. He doesn't call them foolish. And so what does that reveal to us? What does that tell us? And we're reading Galatians and thinking about this other example in another letter that he wrote in 1 Corinthians. It tells me that in all their issues, in all their sin, if he didn't use that phrase or that word, but he used it with a church that is desiring to mix grace and law. So the church that's overly sinful, he doesn't call them foolish. He doesn't, he's not okay with what they're doing, but he doesn't use that phrase. Then he writes the letter to the Galatians and he calls them foolish. And their biggest thing is they're mixing law and grace. So this shows me, and I believe it shows us, the danger of mixing law and grace is equal to or even greater than Christians choosing to condone sin in the life of the church. Think about that for a moment. Paul is saying, hey, you church that's mixing grace and law, you're so foolish. You're, you're, just, you're taking your eyes off the Lord. You're, you're gone astray. You're distracted. You're off course. And he's saying, in in a one way, that's the same or even maybe a little worse than a church where sin was happening and nobody was addressing it. I mean, think about that for a moment. We would not do that. We would not think a church that puts a little law on people and a little bit of religious works and, okay, that shouldn't happen, but it's fine. It's not a big deal. It's not like they're doing this. Paul says, oh, it's so dangerous. In the same way that it's dangerous to overlook sin in the life of a believer in the church, to not address that and walk with that person and try to lead to restoration because that will lead to division in the church. It'll lead to heartache in the church. It'll lead to all kinds of things in the church. The same way open sin in a church is dangerous, preaching law and grace is just as dangerous, just as damaging, and just as destructive to the church. And I believe the reason it's so destructive and dangerous is because it's getting us to take our eyes off the gospel and put our eyes on ourselves. And think it's something I do. It's something that I got to keep doing. It's something we do as a church. This is why for a long time, churches would preach things. As far as importance, they would preach that it mattered more what you wore than how much time you spent in his word this week. It mattered more about what you weren't doing than what you were doing. And all these things, they kind of fell out of that. And some of you grew up in churches like that, where you were literally every Sunday just beat down and beat down and beat down. And you started thinking that God was this performance-driven God, that everything you did was on a giant whiteboard, and he was checking it off. Okay, you're good. Nope. Okay, did that wrong. I'm going to take that away. You don't get any credit for that. And it's just checks and balances system that we think God works on. I think the reason that's so damaging is because people will leave the church. They'll walk away and go, man, I just can't live up to that. I could never be that good. And so we live defeated lives. We live defeated Christian lives where we think God is always mad at us. So we don't pray, we don't read his word, we don't tell other people about him because if I can't do it, they can't do it, so why would I put that burden on them? It just destroys our Christian walk. It doesn't change, hear me now, it doesn't mean that if we're fully saved and we know Christ our Savior, we don't lose our salvation, but we can live a defeated Christian life where we get our eyes off of him and we forget the gospel. And so here Paul opens up with a very powerful, challenging rebuke, you foolish Galatians. It says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ 
has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Now, this is an interesting term, crucified among you. Were these people in the church of Galatia, were they present at the crucifixion of Christ in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem? No. So what is Paul saying? You're saying, listen, you know the truth because we lived it before you. We evidently set forth Jesus Christ. You know that he was crucified and it's evidenced in my crucified life. What did we read at the end or my life that he's been crucified, I should say? What did we read at the end of chapter two? Go back up a few verses. It says in verse 19, remember, uh, just in Bible study, sometimes it's important to remember that the, the divisions we put in our Bible, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 21, those were not in the original writings. Obviously, Paul wasn't writing books and chapters, okay? This was put in to help us understand context, memorization, structure, those kind of things. So a lot of times, the same thought would carry through at the end of one chapter into the beginning of the next chapter, And so what does he say in verse 19? For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And can we just pause there for a second? Can you imagine the first time Paul wrote that? Like you're the Apostle Paul. You're, you know, receiving the word of God. The Spirit of God is moving. I don't believe God turned them into robots where they were just like, okay, I'm writing words. I don't know what I'm writing. Okay. That was a pretty good robot voice. Y'all should have really enjoyed that more than you did. That was, I practiced that all morning. I got nothing. Okay. I'm going to work on that though. When he's writing these words, it's, it's God's not taking over Paul and he loses all ability to be himself. It's the better phrase is that, that God, through the work of the spirit, superintends the writing of God's word. That's maybe a better way to look at that. It's that God, through the spirit, uses Paul, his life experiences, everything that he is, his personality. This is why when you read Paul's letters and John's letters, there's a difference because personality is involved there. And he uses them. And then as Paul's writing there, it's still the word of God. It's accurate. It's every word is meant to be there. But did you ever think for a second when he finished that, that, that line, he gave himself for me. You think he put down his quill and he just paused for a second and he just thought, what did I just write? Like he gave himself for me. See, what did Paul say about himself in his testimony? He said, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles, but I'm the chiefest or the chief of all sinners. I'm the, the worst sinner, persecuted the church of Christ. I've done horrible things. And I think every time he reflected over what God did for him, for him to write the words, but he gave himself for me. And if this was me writing this, I'd have to pause. I'd have to spend some time in prayer and I'd be praising the Lord right here. Have you ever just stopped and went, God, you gave yourself for me? And if you've never paused and thought that through, the implications of that, the power of that, the grace in that, then maybe, just maybe, you think you're a little better than you are. Maybe, just maybe, you've forgotten how bad you really can be and how bad you really are in your flesh. I know for me, I I read these words and I have to pause there and just think, I can't believe it. I can't believe you would die for me. Verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. We can't take verse 1 of 3 without 19 through 21 of chapter 2. He's saying, you know that Jesus was crucified because you see it in my life. You've seen it. You've heard it. You've witnessed it. This is a common thing for Paul to do. He would often say things like, as you've seen me do and say, you go and do and say. Why? Not because Paul was the be all end all, because Paul's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. So Paul goes on here in chapter three and verses two through five. And he poses a question to them to get them to realize the silliness or the foolishness of their thinking. How do we receive the spirit? He kind of poses this opening question. Look at verses two through five with me. 
This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? There's that word again. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So Paul opens up with roughly six questions. And these are primarily rhetorical questions in nature. He's not writing it and waiting for them to respond. He's writing it because these are either rough kind of over-exaggerations of what they're hearing, or it's exact questions that he's hearing they're asking. And he's using this as a form to get them to think through this. At this point, Paul is hearing what is going on in Galatia. He uses rhetorical questions to point out the silliness of their leaving the true gospel for another of not the same kind. This is a great tactic to get the church to think through what they are being taught. Again, this is a popular debate tactic even today. People will use this form in debates. They'll pose a question that they really don't want an answer to, and then they'll answer the question. And it gets you thinking less about what you were going to say and more about, oh, that was a good point. I didn't think about that. So Paul then points out to them, not only is this foolishness, but he points out that this faith idea is not a new thing. You see, he uses these first few verses to ask them some simple questions. And the number one we got to focus in on is, have you begun in the spirit? Are you now made perfect in the flesh? He's saying you, you started off in Christ. You started off in the spirit, started off in faith. Now you think by just living the law, doing good things, you're going to be perfected in that, that that's how you're going to be complete. That word perfection just means complete or mature or grown up. So if you started in faith, what makes you think you're going to grow up and mature through the law? And he's going to use an illustration here that's actually kind of the inverse. He's not saying we start in faith and we move towards the law. He's actually going to point out we start in the law and we move towards faith. You see, this faith idea is not a new thing. Look at verses 6 through 18. Again, I know we're going to read a lot of verses. Uh, This series, we're trying to go really honestly through every verse of the book of Galatians. And so verses 6 through 18 talking about this idea of faith and faith alone not being a new thing, he says this, even as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's again, another one of those pause moments. When you're studying God's word, don't just try to read as many verses as possible. Don't sit down for your Bible study and go, I got to get my 10 verses in my chapter and I got to get my two chapters and whatever. Read it in a way that when God begins to reveal something to you through a verse, now do you believe God speaks through his word? I'm not talking about audibly. I'm talking about the moving of the Spirit. Journal that down. Write that verse down and pause and praise and think through. What did that just say? Even as Abraham believed God, where's the work? Where's the doing? He just believed. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live By faith, this is Romans. If you've ever studied the book of Romans, he uses the same type of language. Goes on to say this in verse 12. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone that hangs on a tree. The crucifixion. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be put on a man's covenant. Uh, Yet if it be confirmed, no man uh, disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, 
The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, this is a, there's a lot in here. And obviously, for time's sake, we're not going to dive into every specific aspect of this. But I want to point out a few things here that I think are important to note as we read through this section. And I know there's a lot of terminology in there. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament or different examples there, uh, I encourage you to study this out on your own through the week. Go back. You can read through Genesis and get much more information of what's being talked about here. But basically, Paul uses the example of Abraham, who we find in the book of Genesis, that is the basis of the covenant of God with Abraham. And what is the covenant of God with Abraham? What is the basis of that covenant? It's not works, it's faith. And he makes that so clear. You can go back and you can read Genesis chapter 12. You're going to find out it was not works-based, it was faith-based. When you study the life of Abraham, and we've actually been doing this on Wednesday nights in our adult Bible study and prayer group, we've been going through the life of Abraham, and we just finished up with the story of Isaac and Abram, and, or Abraham, and the call of God to sacrifice Isaac, and showing that foreshadowing of Christ. But as you study this out, you're going to discover that God fulfilled the covenant in spite of Abraham, not because he was so perfect in keeping the covenant. Abraham was not a perfect man. He was a great man of faith, but he was not perfect. This, again, should encourage you because none of us are perfect. Man, we read stories of Abraham. We're like, oh, look, he lied to save his own life. I can't believe that. You're joking, right? Like, you understand that. Could you imagine? Just think for a moment here. If everything you've ever done in your whole life was recorded in the word of God. Not just the highlight reel that you tell people. Not just the highlight reel that you like to talk about. Right? That championship game in high school football when you were just, you were the man, right? Just scored 27 touchdowns or something. The story just changes every time you tell it, right? Not the highlight reel, but everything. Could you imagine? You turn to a passage and you start reading about your life. And then, by the way, your name's on it, and your family name, and your background, and your children. It's all there. See, I think sometimes we read stories about these individuals and we forget they're real people. Abraham was a real person who had real struggles, real fears, real pain. He was fearful he was going to lose his life and he doubted the word of God. And again, let's be so careful before we jump all over Abraham and ask ourselves, how many times in the last week, don't raise your hand, have you doubted the word of God? I'm not talking about outwardly because most of us have learned as adults we don't outwardly question the word of God because that makes us look not very spiritual. I'm talking about inwardly when you've laid in bed at night and you've struggled to really believe, is God really sovereign? Is God really over all things? Is God really working a plan? Does God really love me? Does God really have a purpose for me? See, those are things that you start to question those things. Guess what you're questioning? The word of God. You're questioning the very word of God. And God is not mad at you when you do that. He's not upset at you when you do that. Because when you do that in reverence and you go to him and say, God, I'm struggling in this. He picks you up. He fills you with his spirit and he walks with you. And begins to show you his word in a new way. So Abraham struggled. He wasn't a perfect man. And that's an encouragement because none of us are perfect either. Abraham was a man of great faith. However, he was also a man of doubt and allowed fear to lead him into very sinful situations. But God worked the covenant in spite of him. God kept the covenant in spite of him, using him, blessing him, providing for him. Because there's a key in Abraham's life. When you study his life, after almost every time that he messed up, you find him going back to that place of connection with God, back to the altar, back to that moment. And then he just spends time with God, repenting and being restored. It is also worth noting here as we read this whole section about Abraham and this covenant and faith. I mean, just stop for a second and just, I want to encourage you to speak, go through 6 through 18. Look at all the times faith is mentioned. Do you think Paul's making a point? I'm a guy and I'm even picking up on this. We're not very good at picking up on things. As I told the group on Wednesday night, you know, God's in his word. And I've said this before. He always says men's names twice. Abraham, Abraham. Right? Jacob, Jacob. He doesn't say women's name twice. Why? Because women listen the first time. Men don't. But we can even get this. 
mean, how many times? It's faith and faith and faith and faith. What's the point? Salvation has always been by faith through grace. Always. It's never changed. Abraham was not saved because he kept the law. Moses was, David was not saved because he kept the law. Did David keep the law perfectly? No. Adultery, murder. That's two big ones. Gone. Done. But he repented. He trusted in God and by faith received grace and I believe was saved. You see, salvation is always faith and grace. It never works. It never works. And Paul is unpacking all that, but it draws a question. If this church is primarily Gentile, or at least those that don't necessarily know the law, they're being taught a mixture of law and grace and a mixture of these things together. And there's some Jews in the church that are trying to lead them astray because these Gentiles are getting saved and not Jews. They're Gentiles. They've not gone through the law. They don't understand the law. Then why would Paul spend so much time talking about Abraham? These Gentiles wouldn't know Abraham. They wouldn't grow up with these stories. So there's a couple of schools of thought here. Either one, Paul preached all of this and taught them all this in a full picture of the word of God, not just starting with Jesus, but starting with all the way back in Adam and Eve which is a great way to share the gospel, by the way. Don't just jump in with Jesus. If people don't even know who God is and don't understand God is the creator God and the authority and the judge and all of this, they don't even understand what sin is or why the world is the way it is, don't necessarily start with Jesus. Go back to Genesis. Listen, in the beginning, God, let's start there. And so maybe Paul did that. He unpacked the whole thing so they understood this. Or maybe part of this is also he's teaching this to the false teachers. He's saying this so that the Judaizers sitting in the church, when this letter is read, will be convicted in their spirit with truth and repent from their false teaching and choose to teach the things according to God's word. See, again, these Judaizers are teaching that the Gentiles must first become Jews, meaning that the men would have to be circumcised. That was the biggest thing. Got to do these works of the law, these signs of the covenant, these things that hold the covenant. The first mention... In Genesis 17, as a sign of the covenant, this idea of circumcision with Abraham. However, the covenant doesn't begin in Genesis 17. It begins in Genesis 12 with a call to Abram. It was when Abram responded in faith that God imputed to him or gave to him righteousness. It was not after the sign of the covenant, but before. Again, this was the whole point. Write it down if you're taking notes. Romans chapters 4 and 5. It's the whole point of those two chapters to unpack that we are justified by faith and not works. So now it brings us to a question, what Paul's going to address. So what good then is the law? Why do we need this Old Testament? Why do we need it? I just said we go all the way back to Genesis if we're preaching the gospel. But if we are free from the law, we're set free from those, those bondages of the law and keeping the law, then why do we need the law? Let's just get rid of it. Let's just throw it away. By the way, there's a popular preacher that basically said that here within the last couple of years. Andy Stanley pretty much said, you don't need the Old Testament. We can just... Just get rid of it. Now, he backtracked it a little bit and said, well, I wasn't saying get rid of it. I was just saying we don't need to really live our lives through the lens of the Old Testament. My point is, I understand if he's saying we're free from the law. I agree with him there. But we definitely need to see our Christian lives through the grace or through the lens of the law because then we understand grace. How do you understand the sacrifice of Christ without the sacrifices in the Old Testament? How do you understand the need of a sacrifice without reading the Old Testament? So what good is the law of God? Well, Paul's going to address that in our last few verses here. Look at verse 19. Verses 19 through 23, we're going to read together. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. To the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. You see these questions again. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. You know what this is saying? You can't legislate righteousness. You can't, by a law, make someone righteous. Haven't we seen this in our own nation today? That's the whole point, right? I mean, people think if we can just pass a law and make that illegal, then it'll fix everything. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. You can't make a law and make people righteous. It goes on in verse 22. But the scripture has concluded all under sin, 
That's another one of those pause moments. What do we mean by all understand? Romans chapter 3. Right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It goes on to say this in verse 22. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. There's that word of believing and faith. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. And so Paul is asking a question here. What good is the law? Well, the first thing he points out is it reveals our sin. I'm going to move quickly through these last couple points because we do have a little bit of a running out of time here. But it reveals our sin. One of the accusations it seems Paul was dealing with from false teachers is that he was abandoning the law and claiming it was not of God. This could be why he phrased that question that way. This is, again, an argument that some make today when we claim the freedom in Christ has set us free from the law and led us into liberty. Some would say, well, you're just making an argument you don't need the law. And you're getting rid of it, and you're saying it's not of God, it's not good, it's not fruitful, and you just want license to sin. So because you want license to sin, you reject the law of God and live however you want. That's the attack that comes against this idea of teaching that we live in liberty. Paul deals with that by clearly pointing out that the law is of God and is fruitful when used lawfully. 1 Timothy 1.8, you can jot that down. 1 Timothy 1.8, that the law of God is fruitful when used lawfully, used in the right way. The reality is that sin existed before the law was given to Moses. It's not that the law reveals sin and the law causes us to sin. Well, now because there's a law, now I sin. No, 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 no. Sin existed before the law was given. Cain killed Abel and God brought punishment for that murder before Moses received a commandment saying, Do not kill. That word kill there means murder. So before Moses wrote, do not kill, do not murder, from God as the Ten Commandments, that murder, that sin had already taken place. And God doesn't overlook it and dismiss it because, well, I didn't give you a law yet that says not to do that. No, the law doesn't create sin. The law reveals sin. I now know that is a sin because the law tells me that's a sin. However, now, again, we have God's standard, which is perfection, the law, and without, we are without excuse. What did Paul say? If you give yourself to the law, then you've got to live under the law. And if you live under the law, you've got to keep all the law, all of it. Well, I, you might think to yourself, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've done pretty good things. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I would pause right there. The Bible says, Jesus says that if a man looks after a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. I'm not going to ask any of the men to raise their hand if any man in this room has ever looked at a woman and had lust in his heart towards her at any point in your life, knowing right and wrong. The Bible says not to take the Lord's name in vain. Well, I would never use the Lord's name as a swear word. Okay, but anytime you use his name without giving it holiness and reverence and honor and the weight. See, vain means empty. We use the name of God with weight. There's a power, there's a substance there. If you've ever used God's name in a flippant way or a, a way that didn't reflect his glory, you committed a sin. The Bible says not to steal. It doesn't say don't steal big things. It says don't steal. If you've ever taken anything in your life that wasn't yours, you've stolen something. Ray Comfort says it this way, how many times do I have to steal something to be a thief? One. See, we all fall Short. That's what Paul's point is. All under sin. And by the way, that's great news. You might not think so. that's great news. Because if we're all under sin, then we all need, equally need grace. And if we all equally need grace, then he has given his son. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you are then not kept by some keeping of the law. As Paul points out in the beginning, you are kept by the son of God because you received him by faith through grace. Not of yourselves. Not of works. So we can't boast, we boast in Christ. See, the the law reveals our sin, makes us aware of our sin. What else is the law needed for or good for? He goes on in verse 24 through 29. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Notice Christ justifies us, not the law. 
But after that, faith is come. We are no longer under a schoolmaster. For we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. By the way, I'm not a biologist, but he says there's only two genders. Just saying. Some of you get that. Some of you will get it later. For you are all one in Christ. There's no division. Verse 29. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And what is the promise that kept being alluded to in this chapter? It is the coming of Christ to the line of promise. Abraham, Isaac, and so on. All the way from Abraham, really from Adam, to Abraham, all the way to Jesus. That he, through Christ, all nations will be blessed. That word nation is, again, not nations, meaning Italy, France, Germany. It's people groups, family groups, ethnos, ethnic people groups. Every people group on planet Earth can be blessed and will be blessed by the coming of Christ. It is a fulfillment of a promise. And the law did not get rid of that promise. The promise happened. Christ came. And now we who are in Christ are one with Christ. That's why we say we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all part of a crazy, weird family. It's just, it's just how God designed it. He says, man, it doesn't matter your background, your gender, your religious background, your educational status. It doesn't matter. You are one in Christ. And he had to get us to the point of understanding you can't do it on your own or through the law. You had to come through Christ. See, the law is our schoolmaster. This term means tutor or guide, a tutor or guide. The role of the tutor in this culture was to prepare the boys for manhood, to prepare the young boys for manhood. They would work in the home, teaching and guiding, not just with education and academics, but everything to do with what it means to be a young man, to be in the world. This is a cultural norm. They would do this. Once that child reached mature age, they no longer needed the guide. In this context, the law of God prepares us for Christ, or as Paul says, to bring us unto Christ. As the law reveals our sin to us, showing us our lack of righteousness, humbling us, it brings us to the point of realization that we need a Savior, one that will wash away our sin because we cannot do it ourselves. The law, as a schoolmaster, reveals our sin, brings us to a point of understanding, maturity. And then once we understand, we can say, okay, now I receive Christ. Now I'm maturing and perfecting and growing up into Christ. And I don't need the schoolmaster anymore. I can learn from it, but it doesn't govern me. It doesn't control me. It has brought me to the point of where I need to be, which is knowledge of salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. This is the model that Jesus demonstrated while on earth. A couple examples you can jot down. Mark 10, 1, or Mark 10, 17 through 27. Mark 10, 17 to 27, and John chapter 4. You're going to see two examples, at least here, where Jesus uses the law to break the heart of the proud and grace to mend the brokenhearted. I want to pause just quickly here and emphasize something in verse 27. And we are so out of time. We're like over out of time. Verse 27. I want to refer to this because I just think I might confuse some people when they read this initially. It says here in verse 27, For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now remember, all that we read so far, it's faith and grace in Christ. Believe in faith and grace in Christ. That's it. Now he talks about this idea of baptism. And so what's he referring to here? Uh, this word here for baptism is not referring to literal water baptism. That we would understand. This is the act of the Spirit immersing us into the body of Christ. The word baptism in the original context means to immerse into, to submerge into. This is why we baptize by immersion when we do a water baptism under the water, into the water, up out of the water. Because that's exactly what that pictures is us being outside the body of Christ and then placed into the body of Christ. And I love that term, submerged. 
immersed. I mean, you are just dunked into Jesus is what it's saying. The spirit of God takes you from outside the body of Christ and submerges you into the body of Christ. At the moment of salvation, you are one with Christ. He is yours and you are his. This is what Paul is referring to in Romans 6 when he refers to water baptism as a symbol of spiritual baptism we experience. This is the dying with Christ and the rising again with Christ. So again, it's just this more emphasis that when we know Christ, we are one with Christ. We are one with him, submerged and immersed into the body of Christ. We receive the spirit of God at the moment of salvation, not by our works, but by faith in Christ that God has offered alone. We are not kept by the works of the law or any religious deeds, but kept by the grace of God, sealed by the same spirit we were given at the moment of salvation unto the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 1. So is the law of God sinful? No. It is fruitful and useful when used lawfully. We are free in Christ, again, not to sin and to live as we please, as we desire to keep the moral law. Again, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, we desire to keep those. Nothing wrong with saying, God, I want to please you, and so I'm not going to commit murder by your grace. I'm not going to look at my neighbor's goods and covet them by your grace because I'm going to reflect you because the life that I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. We are free not to sin as much as we please, but we are free to surrender and serve Christ as much as he wills. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for its freeing power in our lives. Lord, I know that there are many in this room that maybe have lived under a cloud of confusion, thinking about the law and faith, and, and what commandments do we keep? What commandments do we not need to keep? How does God view it if I fall and stumble? Does he love me less? I pray that we would know that we have been submerged into the body of Christ through the gift of the Spirit at the moment of salvation. That we are sealed into the day of redemption. That we have been buried with Christ and we rise again to the newness of life pray that we would live in the freedom of the gospel. Lord, yes, we desire to please you. We want to honor you. By your grace, you've given us gifts and talents and the strength to do what you've called us to do. And I believe your moral law, the law of God, the, the Ten Commandments, is meant to be a, a guidepost, a schoolmaster, meant to encourage us to keep our eyes fixed on you, to reveal to us the things that we should do as we desire to please you, but I pray that we would realize that in breaking one of those commandments, we have not lost our salvation. We have not lost our standing with you because that is in Christ and the finished work of the cross. And so, Father, help us to know these things, to understand these things, as only you can give us wisdom in this way. Father, be with us now as we desire to really, Lord, surrender our lives to you. Lord, the question we have to ask ourselves is we, or are we foolish like these Galatians? And we begin in the spirit and think that we're keeping it in the law, the law of doing. Father, I, I, I don't know if anyone here is battling with this. Lord, I know I have at times in the past. I know I still currently at times if I'm not careful. But Lord, maybe somebody would come and pray and say, Lord, I want to live in the freedom of Christ. I'm tired of living in a performance-based Christianity and fear. I want to just live for you. So, Lord, whatever you're doing, would you do what you need to do in these hearts and minds? If there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray they'd come to know you before it's everlasting too late. They'd receive Christ for the forgiveness of sins, confessing their sins, repenting and turning from them, and trusting in the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for all of this. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name.